your investors are not going to build your company for you. So don't expect that. And people who expect too much of their investors are perpetually unhappy and are the people you always hear complaining about stuff. They didn't fund me for this reason. They didn't help me with that. Like your job is to make the company successful no matter what. And investors are not going to do that for you. You want cheerleaders. You're building a community. You're trying to will something impossible into the world. So I have always had the approach of adding people to the cap table as teammates that add value in some way while keeping low expectations. So I will always find a way. If someone wants to put in 10 million, put in nine, give me a million dollars and I'll split that up with 20 people. Each of them will add something to our company that uh, I might not need on a day-to-day basis, but they're there to call on. And by the way, they build extremely good long-term relationships if you know how to handle it. So that's how I think about it. Hello friends, it's me, Nima Gardide, avid rock climber, startup founder, and yes, podcast host. I wanted to start off this episode by highlighting a few reviews that came in recently. There's one from Jenny Stone that says, this podcast has quickly become one of my favorite listens. The host, Nima, engages the top-notch guests in thought-provoking, insightful conversations. I always walk away with a new idea and invaluable marketing and growth tactics. And there's one from Skylight37 saying, love the idea of having two different perspectives intakes on various topics and what makes it stand out more in the little insightful details during the podcast that makes understanding a certain topic more crucial. Thank you for submitting those reviews, Jenna Stone and Skylight37. It is extremely meaningful to know that people are actually enjoying these podcasts um, and knowing that it's not just me who enjoys doing them. Show the show some love and give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and tell us what you love most about our show. All right, this week's guest is Deepak Chagani, the founder of Nuva Cargo, a freight forwarding marketplace focused on the LATAM corridor. I met Deepak years ago through Y Combinator. We were both struggling to figure out what sort of company to build and we were part of an amazing group of founders meeting up every two weeks to introspect on our process. He's been a close friend and confidant ever since. You may have heard part of Deepak's story, how after his first company, The Lobby, didn't pan out, he returned all the money he received from investors because in his mind, it was the right thing to do. But that's only part of his story. Deepak shares who his main influence was in starting Nova Cargo why he chose to go the YC route, how he solves the complexity of running a B2B marketplace, and his belief that organizational design is flawed by design. Deepak was super open about his startup journey. I learned so much more about him after this interview. I hope you learned a few things too. He starts by sharing how it all began. My parents are from India, so born and raised both of them grew up their whole lives there. And my dad in his late 20s, early 30s, all of his cousins, they were trying to make it in the world. They were trying to find you know, success in business. And the opportunity back then, if you were uh, kind of a young Asian man at that time, was to, you could basically find manufacturers in Asia and help them find customers in countries all over the world. So it's really interesting, his generation of cousins, he has cousins in Africa and Europe and Panama and all sorts of random places where they all just moved and became kind of the Asian connection for local retailers. And so my dad did that a little bit in Panama and then found an opportunity to start his own 
company doing this in Ecuador. And so basically for 35 years, he built a small business, which has since shut down, but a business that basically was helping your, if you're a local school supply store retailer and you need a connection in China or India to buy your supplies and, and connect with manufacturers uh, and then help you with the logistics of moving the goods from that origin to 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 where you were, uh, he would help you with a lot of those logistics and even help you with things around working capital and, and financing and more. So I grew up in Ecuador my whole life from zero to like age 17 until I went to college. My parents were like good Indian parents, pretty obsessed. My kids should go to the US for college. We were never able to. My dad actually had a year where he tried to do his master's in North Carolina, living with family, but he was like working 16 hours a day and studying and driving around and he just left because it wasn't working and it was a little bit too difficult um, just from a financial standpoint and, and not having enough time to actually be a student. So they, they had this visceral feeling and dream, my kids are going to study in the US. Uh, so, you know, his whole priority was not around superfluous things with the money that he made. It was like, I'm just going to save up so my kids can go to the US. And I went to the American school in Guayaquil, Ecuador. That's where I grew up. Uh, and the environment was, was what I just mentioned. It was, you know, even though everyone locally was going to these Roman Catholic schools, um, very weird. If you were in the international school, it was very weird and antisocial. It had different calendars than everyone else, but it was all about the best possible education, like a good Indian family. And then I was able to come to the US in 2010 for college in a small school called Bentley, a business school right on the outskirts of Boston. Lots of Latin Americans there. So it felt like home, amazing academic environment, uh, got to meet a bunch of people. Uh, and then, you know, I'm happy to go deeper if you want, but then, you and know. So, so these, uh, what did you call it American schools or just language schools? Like, no, no, English I, I, language? Like, an, like an American school. Like my school was part of uh, what's called SACS, like an accreditation of American schools in, I think in South America or maybe everywhere. My school was the one where everyone would go and study for the SAT if you wanted to go to the US in that city. But it was just a very weird school from a social standpoint is, is kind of the point, right? Yeah, yeah. We had some of those in Iran. I didn't go to them, but um, yeah, basically English speaking um, classes. And yeah, exactly. Like basically, and you're doing like, what, what were you doing, IB or? IB was more British. We were doing AP, like the US system. And there were some British and German schools and they were doing IB. Uh, ours was the only American one that had a different calendar and did AP. And like I said, helped you with the SAT and, and stuff like that. Was that from the beginning? Like from what, which school, primary school onwards, you were in these types of schools? Basically from K to 12. And then nursery was another school, but that was like the only American school. And my parents, there was actually a time when I was 15 where all of my friends were changing to these like, Catholic schools because the social life was better. And we always felt like the weird kids throughout the whole city. And my parents are very proud of this. I don't think there's many times where you can say to your parents, hey, this one decision, like the thing you didn't let me do was a very good decision. I made their life miserable for two years because all of my best childhood friends were changing to these schools. Uh, and they said, I'm not letting you. I'm not letting you. And I actually thank them for that today. Uh, that's the that's one thing that probably yeah, I, I really am grateful to them for, whereas all the other stuff they didn't let me do, I, I probably still as a kid was like, you should have let me. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting thing of like the standard of, I, I, it's interesting because you grew up in an Eastern culture because your parents were from the East and I, I grew up in the same culture of like the American standard. Like everyone's goal was to eventually make it to America. Yes. Um, and I think there's this, a friend of mine who's um, also in, in America recently like tweeted on her 30th birthday or something that, she she gets to be in this country and you, no one understands unless you're from the other parts of the world 
how important this achievement is of like being a citizen of, of America. I'm not a citizen, but she is now. Um, it's, it's quite interesting. So but by the by the way, on that, yeah, like for me, something people are always focused on the startup world, like, you know, how much money did you raise? Uh, how big is your team? And and whatever. For me, one of the biggest and happiest moments was getting my green card because I had gone through like six visas and like impossible processes. My my wife, who was then my girlfriend, also had to leave the country. So, yeah, not only is it like the dream, it's also really hard as an immigrant uh, to live here. So I totally empathize with that. Yeah. Then there's like an interesting thought I have always had of there is like probably some form of investment strategy of just investing in the immigrants that were able to figure out the visa stuff <laughs> <laughs> to be here. Because you, you, it's it's not easy. They don't make it easy for startup founders to get visas in this country. It's super difficult. And I think it's a very bad move. Like it's 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 draining a lot of great talent. One of our investors, One Way Ventures in Boston, their whole thesis is around immigrant entrepreneurs and they help them with the visa stuff. And even they'll tell you it's just a nightmare. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, I deal with it. We're three founders, all immigrants, and it's it's quite a lot of work and it's very stressful. Every year we have to renew very these stressful. things. And yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting. So your whole life was kind of like pre-planned that you're going to study in, in, in America. And are you so you said you went to Boston? Yeah, I went to a small business school called Bentley University in Waltham, Massachusetts, which is like a 15 minute drive from downtown Boston. Uh, so very near this incredible academic environment with Harvard and MIT. And again, this school, beautiful greenery, you know. Yeah, it was it was it was awesome. Uh, it, it was the, one of the yeah, transformed my life, right? Just being there. So why business? Why were you go gravitating towards that? I mean, I think maybe it's how I grew up. Like my dad had done well as a business person uh, and I couldn't really find an interest. I, like I was a good student. I was grade skipped from sixth to eighth grade. So I was like the canonical good Indian kid until eighth grade. And then I started rebelling and being a bad student. And I had teachers who would say Deepak is horrible student, but I think he's going to do well in business. And I had this <laughs> stereotype that I was just going to be a business guy, I guess. Um yeah, I mean, going back, uh, I would have loved to have been pushed in the direction to learn some harder skill like computer science or, or something like that. But uh, at the time, it just felt like business. And I didn't really study business. I felt I don't want to study business as, as a major. I'd rather do something tangential to that. So it ended up being economics and finance, uh, which to me is kind of business, but not really. If, if It's not like it's not a degree in business. It's it's economics and finance. And those skills are actually, in my opinion, more useful than um, business school. If you want to start a company, it's probably like better if you're doing business school and you want to be a middle manager somewhere and run existing companies. But if you want to start from scratch, like just knowing how to build a spreadsheet for a budget <laughs> takes you a long way. Yeah, exactly. A hundred percent. Yeah. So, so you started a business in, in undergrad. Did you do masters or anything like that? Or you just went to the workforce? No, I, I, I didn't. Uh, but that's a, that's a, it's an interesting topic with my family because I, 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 so I went to school 2010 to 2014, 2014 to about 2016. I was in investment banking at B of A Merrill Lynch. That was like a big deal for my parents. Cause it was like the shiny corporate job. Also most kids from my school, Bentley, they don't get those jobs investment banking because it's all like Ivy League. So that was like a whole uh, mission and, and a nice accomplishment. And then a lot of people who you're with in banking, they'll do a couple more years and then they'll go to business school. And for me, that was like, oh, this is my chance to finally the American dream for my parents wasn't about money. It was like, well, maybe you'll do your master's at Harvard or Stanford or something. So that was always very present when I quit that job and I took a little sabbatical. One of the one of the things I did was uh, take the GMAT because I thought, hey, I'll try a startup. And if it doesn't work, 
maybe my hedge will be business school. And, <laughs> uh, and that's since expired. And I don't think I'm ever going to do it anymore. But uh, I, I did not do my master's, but it was a, a, a topic that kept coming up for many, many years. So your parents would literally talk to you about, hey, are you going to think about doing your master's? Like, what are you doing with your life? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting, like, it's like a classic thing, right? Like, I'm from Iran, right? And my parents, um, they never w finished a single degree until much later. My mother started getting her degrees in her, like, 40s. <clears throat> um, so their dream was that we get degrees. Um, and their first child, which is me, I dropped out of my undergrad. Um, <laughs> and and they, they loved that. So I, they, they, they kept asking me to start again. But my, fortunately, my brother finished his undergrad at least. So that's, there's one of us that did it. Um, but that, it's an interesting sort of pressure that is put on at least our generation. I assume you're not going to do the same with your uh, kids if you ever have them and when you have them. But it's an interesting thing that at that point, that was like the, that was a definition of prestige and importance of like success in life. I don't know how you think about this, but I actually really do understand where they're coming from. Even now in the startup world, right? Like for me, I was very lucky to get into YC, which is kind of, we met through, through that community. Uh, and then there's other startup communities that you learn a lot. And then as you spend a few years in the startup world and you meet many, many successful founders or investors, there are some patterns where people ended up going to a lot of the same schools and learned a lot of the same tricks and networks. Um, so I actually, I have a lot of empathy for the immigrant parents who are like, it will really change your life to get into one of these schools. I think many people, including like, it would be my interest to say it doesn't matter because I didn't go to one of those schools. But I actually do think that if you have the privilege to attend one of them, it does, it can bend the trajectory of your life. Like if you look at our executive team or our board, like the amount of Stanford, MIT, Harvard grads is just off the charts. And it's not because we screen for that. It's because we're looking for people with certain experience that have seen certain things or been in certain environments. And and they are in, in some ways centers of excellence that attract people. Like I'm sure there's a lot of dumb people that don't know anything in those schools, just like in any community. But on average, they expose you to knowledge and insights and I would say secrets about the world. Uh, that's what my first startup idea was about, actually. It was about like democratizing some of those insights because getting the Ivy League job in banking where I started from, that was really weird. And it came through all these like uh, unstructured coffee chats and learning the secrets and the insights. So I have a lot of empathy for that. But I also, to your point, I don't think I would pressure my kids. I would actually tell them to learn the things that matter and try to find creative ways to get that information, maybe without the degree or, or, or through the degree, whatever, whatever you're able to do without being miserable, right? Because I think a lot of people also make themselves miserable if they don't go to one of those schools, which is also not good. Yeah, and I think there's an a interesting debate to have. I, I think, uh, you know, when people ask me if they should do YC, this is the argument I give them is that you're buying a network more than anything else. And, and legitimacy, right? You're yeah. buying a stamp, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, totally. And, and there is, there is, there's a different cachet. I've seen, you know, we started investing in funds this past year and a lot of the decks I see are like, hey, we're only going to do Stanford and Harvard grads. You know, right. it's literally a strategy and, and it's a common one. And, and so I, I definitely see it um, still to this day. I, I, um, the thing I think I personally don't value prestige that much. I care about like building things and like i think you can learn how to build stuff better outside of um academia so it really depends on what you're trying to do like some of the best people we work with in my company are like in their early 20s and they even some of them dropped out of high school even um just because they're good makers you know and and they they found their passion and um are going to be i think the top of their field one day 
Yeah, and, and, and I totally agree with you, by the way. I, I think that it's not even what you learn in the classroom in these places. It's the environment and the networks, right? Like I would argue you, Nima, you didn't go to one of these schools, but you're at the top of your game. You've spoken with very smart people. You have exposure uh, to some of the best insights in the world, like in the world of performance marketing or startups. And so someone who gets to work with you gets access to that. I think it's just I think what I what I believe is that the odds of you getting exposed to the best of the best in any field do go up if you find the centers of excellence. It's not that you won't find them if you're just Googling them on your own. It's just you might make it much harder on yourself or have to rely a lot more on your ability to figure it out. Whereas if you're in these centers of excellence, it might just be grab a coffee with your professor who built 10 companies or whatever, right? Go to the center where they built 10 uh, of the state-of-the-art robotics advances or the story of Bill Gates where he was next to computers because he was in this fancy boarding school where there weren't computers elsewhere in the world, right? I think that's 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 what I I find very interesting is the centers of excellence, I think, can, can shape the trajectory of your life in a way that if you're outside of them, it's, it's just harder, right? Yeah, I think I agree. I agree with that. The part of me wants to believe that if you're an outlier, you'll just get out of like those things won't matter, right? Sure, sure. But lots of the outliers that are currently running the biggest companies in the world for sure came from those privileges. So that, that's that's yeah. my observation as well, right? So yeah. totally agree. So with you. it's definitely a thing. I think maybe Jobs was one of the only ones that that didn't come out, of, but he still went to like a decent he school. He was in Silicon and, Valley, right? Yeah, like and that's he was a like, grew, of he grew up right? in it, yeah. Um, so it, it, yeah, it's an interesting area. Um, so you went, so why investment banking? And, and I'm glad you stopped there, but like what, yeah, two years, why did you get go there to begin with? Was it just the, uh, I want to do this job that everyone thinks is the best thing to do? Like, No, that, that, that's, that's on point. I don't know how many people admit this on podcasts. It was probably purely out of like, insecurity intrigue of like why is this this shiny thing that even the harvard kids it was i will never forget it was the first time in my life where i went to the final round interviews and everyone had their resumes printed out and it was all these kids and they were all from ivy league schools and i got the job and they didn't and so it was almost like it felt almost like irresponsible not to take it and see what this was about uh or i was given this unique opportunity that other people went to these amazing schools that I never got into. Uh, but I think that's what it boils down to. It's this shiny thing, investment banking. It's amazing. It's where everyone starts their career. You would, I would devour these forums where they're like, well, if you want to be a hedge fund manager, like this guy you saw on CNBC, they started in investment banking. If you want to be in private equity. And so I thought it was, I, I in hindsight, which hindsight is 2020, I saw it as like my first foray into trying to be in a true center of excellence, which it felt like at the time that I could access. Um, but then I always had reservations because I knew it was like really stupid that they made you pull all nighters and work 100 hours for PowerPoint and Excel. Uh, and so even four months in, I was like, I'm probably going to quit this job at some point. But I, I held out. I waited till the first year bonus. Then I didn't get the visa. They said, we'll send you to Mexico. I said, well, in Mexico, I'll be a second year. So I'll have more skills and uh, we'll make another bonus and wait. And then even when I got to Mexico, I got like three weeks off and I started in a week and I'm like, I have to quit this crap. I, I just don't. I don't want to do it. But I do think that's what it was, Nima. It was like my version of like, this is my center of excellence that I can have access to, the stamp. And to be honest, it has helped when I would raise the first money or get into YC. They'd be like, oh, this guy seems like he works hard. Not because he went to Bentley. Like, let's be real. It was, he was an investment banker. Like this guy went through two years of hell. We knew people that literally would go to investment banking and the army and they would say investment banking was worse because you didn't sleep. <laughs> you had to function with with no sleep. And so 
that's what it gave me, even though I really didn't love how it felt at the time. It was like, again, credibility that this is a hard worker and he could he could access a center of excellence, like a, an area where everyone is smart or went to the best centers of excellence. Uh, but, but I knew even four months in that I wasn't going to be there forever. I was just trying to find a way out that didn't make me feel like someone who's going to have a black mark on their resume, if, if I'm being candid. Yeah, yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. I think the, I, I remember starting my first company out of, well, I dropped out of college and started a company and, that, and it failed. And I immediately like helped another company get off the ground. And, and I quit that like a few months in because I felt like the founders were unethical. And I remember thinking this resume problem kept, kept like creeping up in my mind. I was like, maybe I'm not an entrepreneur. That means I have to go out in the world and get jobs. And like, if they see I'm just hopping around every few months, it's, it's very scary. And so like building this, this base and foundation of people trusting that you can get stuff done. Um, there's a mentor of mine that gave me this uh, phrase. It was, uh, he, he said, you know, I think you just have to show people that you can ship. Cause I was, you know, engineer and product manager. Um, and you can't do that in like three, four months anywhere. So, uh, it was an interesting sort of advice that aligns with what you're talking about here. Um, and even in, I feel like in product and engineering, you can just show like an art or you can show what you're made of. Or if you're like a quant analyst, you have the best algorithms. I genuinely think that in investment banking, there is no way to differentiate. You just stay up longer than the next guy. You build a slide 5% prettier than the next person. And, uh, so it, it just felt like a race to the bottom of just like destroying your health and not doing anything unique. So I just wanted to quit after I realized that after a few months, you know. That's interesting. Did you ever like, uh, was there a network you acquired there that was helpful? If I can be honest, for what I'm doing today, no. I mean, the only cool validating thing is when my former bosses have been recently inviting us back now to talk about transactions we could do with Nouveau Cargo, which is surreal to me. <laughs> uh, so I think it was useful that they see me as an alum of Bank of America Merrill Lynch and, and, and I know where they're coming from and I know the work that they do. Uh, and you know, maybe if Nouveau Cargo starts buying up companies, the network of M&A bankers and, and raising debt and equity maybe, but candidly for starting up in the startup world, not really. And, and all the things I just told you, you probably get them anyways when you start becoming a later stage founder without you trying, like they, people will come to you and tell you like, Hey, we're looking to help startups in this and this way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, but I think the worth eth ethic part is super useful of like going in and like knowing what it's like to grind. Um, cause yeah, I think if you haven't done that and you're starting a startup, um, you don't know what your limits are. And then having done it without the existential crisis of this company could die gives you this like learning of like, okay, I, I know I can grind at this level and continuously do it for a long time. Um, that's an interesting thing to have learned. And, and there's many other learnings related to that. Like one, one thing we'll, we'll tell people is like you as an analyst in banking, you're sending emails with attachments and specifics, uh, specific analyses to C CEOs and CFOs of multi-billion dollar companies. And you're trying to send things to your managing directors because the teams are small. So you learn how to speak in a professional way with people that are much more senior than you. I think a lot of those skills continue to help to this day. But aside from that and work ethic, it doesn't really help you with startups, to be honest, yeah. right? <laughs> And so why, why, so you quit and then decided, is this like, the, at this point you knew you're going to start a company? Yes and no, right? What I said is I want to take a little sabbatical. I don't know anything. I keep reading so much about startups, but I can only look at this stuff at like 1 or 2 a.m. when I'm half asleep after work. Even weekends you would work. It's like insane job. They would be like protected Saturdays and you'd still be in the office on Saturdays. So I knew that there was no way I was going to like learn enough to make good decisions. 
And, and so I quit. I said I had some savings from from banking. You know, that's one of the benefits. You get like a bonus at the end of your first year or whatever. And I took a little sabbatical where I was reading a lot about startups. I was studying for the GMAT, like I said. And my goal was like at the end of the sabbatical, quote unquote, I'm going to pick an idea and I'm going to get started. Um, and so that's what I did at the end of like 2016, picked one idea in the, or in the early 2017. I can't remember, picked an idea that was kind of like a mentorship legacy thing for old people that three months later morphed into the lobby, which is like a mentorship thing to get jobs in banking. Uh, but I, I did know that I wanted to start something. And this is one thing that YC always tells you not to do. Like, don't force picking an idea. And now in like a month, I'm giving a talk with them about, hey, you're the only one who we know who forced, picked an idea and it worked. So can we, <laughs> can we talk about it? <laughs> yeah, so I definitely want to get into that because I also do. I think that is like one advice you can take. It's not the only advice. And, and actually, I'm generally into um, your approach. I have a couple of friends running decently strong businesses in that area. Um, and I guess like probably for just disclosure reasons, I, I'm an investor in Deepak um, yes. for the listeners. Um, so <laughs> tell me, yeah, so you started this, the, the lobby. I remember, I remember launching on Bookface. This is like the internal YC thing. And, and then I didn't really hear about you until you came into our, that the YC therapy group, right? So can we, <laughs> can you just tell people what this, this thing is that we have? Yeah. So uh, the way I would describe it, I mean, again, people are not open about this stuff. I think one of the hardest parts of being a founder is uh, managing your own psychology. And one of the ways that I've done that, and I think Nima has done that as well, is finding support groups where you can freely talk about your issues with other founders. And so Nima and I have been part of a group for, I think, more than three years now. Yeah, three where years. We meet, oh, four years. We, we try to meet every two weeks or three weeks just group of founders where they just talk about problems. Cause you know, as a founder, you're selling absolutely everyone all the time. You can't talk about this stuff with your team, with your board. And so I think it's been a really powerful outlet and community for me as I pivoted and as my wife got deported and as we picked a new company and got it off the ground and all that. So I'm very grateful to, to you, Nima specifically, and, and to the group that we have. Yeah. I mean, and, and Ditto, I think I've learned a ton from you and, and you come up in like, we have these things called meta days, uh, which are like effectively our board meetings. Cause we don't have a board. Um, we don't have investors and stuff. And, <laughs> and I think some of the things you say, like I end up writing them down and like, oh yeah, Deepak said this, like how could we <laughs> talk about Amazing. this? Uh, so, and just so we can like get an understanding, you know, you, what did you learn from the lobby? I don't want to focus too much on it because like, it was like a thing you ran for a while. Uh, you had, you found a co-founder for that or no, it was like a solo thing. The, the like, lobby, I was a single non-tech founder. That's why I say changed my life that YC, Jared Friedman, actually, who I'm doing the event with in Mexico city in our offices, he funded me as a single non-tech founder with an idea that every YC partner except him hated and knew probably wouldn't work because they funded six iterations of that idea. Um, but basically what the lobby was, was a, a marketplace where anyone who wanted to get a job inside one of these coveted banks or tech companies, uh, if they didn't have a network uh, to help you prepare for interviews or make sure you knew what interviews would be like or prepare your resume, you could spend 50 or 100 bucks on, uh, on, a, on a paid coaching call with someone who had been inside those companies and they would do mock interviews, review your resume. Uh, and I, and we kind of productized that into an online marketplace and got into YC with that raised about a million, 1.2 million for that. And then six months after YC pivoted, cause I realized it was a very bad idea. <laughs> so you got, but you built the thing out. I remember it was like some former product. So you found engineers, you built the thing out. I'm, I'm very proud of what we built. Actually, it, it worked, was fully automated. It was this extremely manual process of like, 
getting people to book and, and schedule and reschedule calls. And we automated all of that with the engineers that I work with. And that was an incredible experience for me doing product, which I didn't really know how to do product, right? Yeah. And I think that's like the number one important thing is like going back to that advice I got when I was young is just shipping is so important. And it's so hard to ship when there is like, you are the main product manager. So you have to come up with everything and then figure out what, what, what has to be built. And, and that's like a very hard skill. And it's like the first one you have to learn as a founder, I think. Um, and so when you decided to pivot, you, I remember you returned some of the money or like you, yeah, just give us like a, give me a, yeah. What did you like? That's not, first of all, that's like very nice of you. And, uh, I would expect the same from like any founder I invest in to just say, Hey, I've learned that this is not going to work and I don't think I have enough money for the next thing. So here's your money back. Um, how did that go? I mean, I was like 24, 25. I was, I was a nervous wreck with it. So I think in hindsight it was handled well, but it was really the hardest thing for me at the time, but it was basically finish YC winter 2018 raise 1.2 million. We closed out like in April, May. And then six months later, when I realized it wasn't really working and scaling, um, I decided I'm going to change course radically. And we still had, because we had been so frugal or I had been so frugal, uh, I want to say 70% of the money in the bank. Uh, so high hundreds of thousands with very low burn. So we could have kept going for a while, but I came to the conclusion that, Hey, this is going to be a waste of time and it's going to be a waste of my shot where I'm single Montic founder, have YC on the cap table. I'm young. I have a lot of energy. Like I'm not going to, if I see it's not going to work, why would I trick myself? So I made a couple of radical decisions. The first one was to bring the burn down, let go of our team. We were about eight people, uh, including one engineer who actually waited a few months and came back with us. He's still at Nouveau Cargo today. Uh, his name is Mohammed. So huge shout out to Mohammed. He's, he's incredible um, for, for, for that, you know, loyalty and, and sticking with us. Um, and then it took me two months to pick the new idea. And that's where I went through this whole methodic process that YC wouldn't approve of, but I think now they might say that it works in, in the event we're going to do next month. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and then when I picked the idea, I started telling some of the angels, cause again, we, we couldn't raise from any funds. They hated the idea. It was from 41 angels, $1.2 million. And so I started calling all of them, which is probably a mistake. Cause I was so desperate for their approval to make sure everything was okay. And I started getting mixed reactions where many of them were like, hey, we backed you, it's fine. And then others were being very negative. So I got some advice and made the decision to offer them the 70% back. Anyone could take it if they wanted to, but I was obviously lobbying on the sides of like, hey, I want the ones who are being loyal to me to stay because I have this big idea and I think it's going to be huge. Um, and then many of them left, but most of them stayed actually. And then some of them tripled down with nothing, with just like, hey, I believe you for making this decision, which is insane to me till this That's day, awesome. right? Which is like the magic of Silicon Valley. Yeah, those are the good angels. They get it. Um, I love it. So, so, and then you had this, can you um, snapshot? I remember, so this is actually around the time I met you where you were going through this process of like, hey, I want to start a better business. Um, and you had all these different ideas. Like, how did you hone down on this one? Um, and, and were you running tests? Were you just doing like, the top-down analysis of like big markets, where can I make money? Like, how are we doing it? Yeah. So, yeah, I've, I've talked about this publicly a bunch, so uh, might be repetitive for other people who've heard. But very simply, I I came into the process thinking, hey, I was I was given bad advice, where the advice of everyone in Silicon Valley was the only way to pick an idea is you got to solve your own problems, and the only problems you have as a mid twenties urban millennial 
who worked at like a bank for two years is the same ideas that everyone's been trying to solve in the early 20 teens, delivery, how to get a job, some other obscure thing that you're dealing with, but maybe doesn't apply to the rest of the world. So once I realized that I, I, that there were a lot of companies in my YC batch that were successful that didn't pick their ideas that way. I said, hey, I think I should choose something where I have more of an edge as a founder and is much more blue ocean uh, and is more interesting. And so for me, that was something at the intersection of logistics and Latin America. And so did more top down research and ended up picking what Nouveau Cargo was because I saw the success of companies all over the world doing something similar. And I said, someone is going to do this in my region and at the intersection of the US and Latin America. I think I'm one of the I don't know, few people in the world was really well suited for this specific idea. And so I think that part was top down. And then what was bottoms up was the rest of the execution after that, which is what I had learned from YC, like pick something, talk to your customers, launch something, grow every week. But but the problem was I did all that with my previous idea. And then when I picked up and looked back, I've been doing all this advice, but there wasn't a good business model. There wasn't a big enough market. So I said, I'm not making that mistake again. I'm going to pick something with a great market, great business model, and then I'll do all the other stuff I learned from YC, which is not to be like an MBA student, be much more micro, interview your customers, find creative ways to, to do a lot with very few resources, grow every week, pick a specific metric, right? And so I think this was a more blended approach uh, between what I had seen work and all the YC advice, which a lot obviously has a lot of truth to it. But I think you have to be careful not to follow that stuff blindly uh, when you when you're when you're, I don't know, a founder like me who just have like a business background. Right. Yeah. And I think like you, when you re read it, I've been reading like maybe well, at least PG stuff, but then YC stuff since I was like 17 or something like that. And um, it's almost like the Bible of startups, which is as problematic like it's I, I think it's a fair comparison where like they're look, looked at as dogmatic truths about yeah. the world mm -hmm. yeah it's it's not true it's just one way of looking at the world and and it's not the only way so uh I, you know the way i would describe like the category of building you're doing is uh there's there's two areas one is like just hey identify problems and see if you can build something the other one i like and i think it's maybe you you, you we disagree with the categorization is fast follows um, in a slightly different segment of a market, right? So like there are other players in a space, you think there is like two or three things they're doing poorly and they haven't addressed this part of the market. Um, and that part of the market is still a multi-billion dollar business to build. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a fair description. Again, I wouldn't call it fast follows because as you learn about the intricacies of applying X for Y in another geography, you realize it's extremely different in a hundred different ways. But I think the the overall concept of something that can become this actually happens to me a lot is YC founders will reach out because I wrote a post about how I pivoted and now I have like a hundred data points of YC founders pivoting. And now when people reach out to me and ask me, hey, I need to pick a new idea, I will almost not listen to anything. I'll just ask with a simple question. Are you in this to do something you're passionate about or are you trying to build a successful venture backed company. Because for me, those are two different things. There's a lot of people, including people you and I know that really want to be building for a specific segment and a customer segment, and they're passionate about it. But the odds of you finding like a problem naturally, and then that can also be a business that gets to 100 million ARR in five years and can be venture backable, you're just making it really hard for yourself. And so I think if you want to build a business that can be venture backable, you do have to look at examples where the incumbents are very large or startups have gotten to that scale in a compressed amount of time and then figure out what's your innovative spin. Like that is an approach to startups that for me is like is 100x less 
popular to talk about, but is talked about when I would grab coffee chats with experienced YC partners, with fourth time founders of how they pick their ideas. So I know this is how it's done, but no one likes to talk about it because it's less poetic than, and then I couldn't pay my rent and, and I figured <laughs> this thing out and, and boom, now we're worth a hundred billion dollars, right? Which happens like one time a century. One right? time like a thousand. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and it, you know, there, there is a poetic version of it for me actually is that, hey, I am like building the economy here instead of trying to like change the game, which is, I think, totally. admirable. And I think plenty of people should do it. Um, I want to get a bunch of people around me rich and build like value in this in this system. Um, and I think that's interesting. And I can focus on that for like five to 10 years. I mean, we're creating hundreds of jobs in Latin America, bringing Silicon Valley best practices. The industry is like the backbone of global trade, which is the thing that connected humans for thousands of years, right? It's just you're picking something that makes sense. And then you're just focusing all your efforts on execution instead of choosing something where even if you solve every existential startup problem, it still might not work because you didn't think through the business model. So it's just an approach. I'm not saying it's the approach and it probably doesn't work for most people, but I think people should talk about different approaches to picking ideas because they all want to obsess over the, the YC gospel approach. And I think even, like I yeah, said, even I YC they're, knows they're this They're waking now. up to it because they've missed on enough of these. <laughs> uh, they're not attracting the founders that are like, look at that advice and say, that's just bad advice. I'm going to build something different, right? Um, so you started Nova Cargo and you decided to find a co-founder for this one. So what, why, why did you do that and how did you find him? So I, I had always been trying to find a co-founder. I think one little known fact about me is uh, when I was alone with my sabbatical and looking for ideas and then started with the lobby, I was going to a WeWork alone every day and setting my schedule. So that's a pretty lonely life. And all the advice online was like, including the YC gospel, you need a tech co-founder. I agree with that advice, but it's really hard to attract someone that you think is incredible why would they join a 24, 25 year old with no credentials, with a little bit of money? Like that's really hard. So what I had done during the lobby was build a network of potential CTOs, add them to my monthly update and show them how we were like making progress and hustling. And one of them was Sam Blackman, who's now my co-founder and our CTO. And he was the head of engineering at Common. One of his direct reports almost joined me into YC as a co-founder. So building my network of potential engineers and CTOs. And then when I decided to pivot, it coincided that Sam was like, look, I really liked you. I didn't like your other idea. Let's grab a whiskey and see if we built something together. So when I pivoted, he was kind of there and open and finally in the headspace of maybe this sounds interesting. And then as I went through the idea maze, we would look at some ideas together. And then finally, I decided on this idea and convinced him to join like in month two or three, right? I think it was March, April, 2019 when we, when we started the whole thing. Yeah, no, super early. So you came on from the beginning and yeah, so I, I definitely want you to tell this story because I thought that was like the most interesting thing of like how hard it is in the, in the space you're in. So uh, I think you're like an ops heavy tech enabled business, right? And that, like we're very comfortable calling uh, both of our business tech enabled services businesses. And um, how did you need to, I remember something around the licensing that was very hard. Like, I guess also like, just tell everyone what is Nova Cargo? What's problem do you guys solve? And how did you have to get into it in terms of licensing? Yeah, so Nova Cargo is very simply, so for those who don't know, uh, every product in physical product in the room you're sitting in or I'm sitting in Nima, whether it's your AirPods, your t-shirts, your laptop, your glass that I'm having water from, like absolutely every product around us goes through supply chains. Uh, and what does supply chain mean? It's a jargony way of saying like the process of manufacturing the goods in the country that they're made 
all the way from them getting delivered to your house as a consumer, right? Like all of that can be considered part of the supply chain. And businesses that make these products have supply chains. And so what we do at Nouveau Cargo is there's a part of the supply chain, which is the process of moving the goods from the country where they're manufactured from a facility to the country where they're going to be distributed or sold. And that process of moving a truckload of goods from Mexico to the US or the US to Mexico, which can have 14 for 15 different stakeholders, um, has different currencies, languages, you have to find the trucks, you have to tap into a transportation network. There's all sorts of complexities. We are aiming to digitize and make more modern that age old process. And we do it with a business model called freight forwarding. And there's uh, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of freight forwarders in the world. The biggest are worth five, 10, $50 billion publicly traded with two to 4% market share. And they were founded hundreds of years ago. So we're reinventing that business model with software, with venture capital and with a modern startup mindset. And we focus specifically on goods that move over the road between Mexico and the US to start, which is the world's biggest trade lane. It's bigger than US China, where Flexport has built like an $8 billion business uh, and, and many other companies that many people here might might know of, right? So that's what we do. And as the thinking that you're going to aggregate some of these existing players, like why would a, I, I guess you know, there's like 10 or 15 stakeholders. So that's a lot of stakeholders to begin with. Like who, who are you helping now and like i assume you want to be helping all of those people with tech but who are you helping right now the nice thing is you don't have to start by helping everyone you have to start by helping the person who makes the purchasing decision for the transportation which is the shipper so let's give you a simple example let's say it's a tequila or mezcal brand in new york that makes their tequila and mezcal in mexico and so they're the ones that need to get their goods from the distillery delivered to their warehouse here in new york now for that process they would probably need to hire seven to 15 different companies, depending on the complexity of their supply chain. So you go to them and tell them, hey, I can help you with this. And then my B2B marketplace on the back end is helping coordinate a lot of those services first externally. And then our roadmap is really to bring a lot of those things in house and do it ourselves, whether it's the licenses to import and export to file with the government, we can now do that ourselves, whether it's finding you the truck on the Mexican side, the US side, we can do that now as well. And then there's others like if you need to procure insurance for the goods or something like that. Over time, Nouveau Cargo is bringing all of those in house so you can just deal with us. And that will give you structured data on your shipments end to end that you typically would would not have. It would live on emails and faxes and phone calls and then use that data to understand your supply chain and have really robust insights on what's going on so you can find ways to have more efficient routes, safer for your trucks, lower cost, et cetera. Yeah, I love it. So I would go from like dealing with something like five to 10 people or 10 businesses to, dealing to with one. just one. One or, or today with us, it's like three, but it will be one over time. Like that's the thesis, right? That seems like a very big improvement. Um, yeah. <laughs> like I would, I would, I would take that deal um, if I if I were the shopper. So okay, so that that makes sense. And then there's like technology involved there, and there's all these optimizations you can do because there's technology. Yeah, it's really communications, right? It's communications. It's integrating. Where's my truck? Instead of chasing them down, we have a GPS integration. You can look at it on our platform. Where's this document of what my goods are worth, so they can get across the border? We have that because we're integrated. We've uh, procured that paperwork, or we or we've created it because we have the right licensing in house to do that ourselves, et cetera, et cetera etc until it just becomes much more smooth and efficient right yeah and how, what did you have to do to get started because you can't just go and do this stuff you can't just ship stuff right yeah you can't um good question so all i knew when we started is we wanted to do this business model for trade between the united states and latin america that's my background right and i was lucky that in maybe month one or two i had gone to a conference in vegas 
the first logistics tech conference ever for the most important logistics publication. And it felt like it felt so old school that that was what made me excited. I was like, wow, there's so much opportunity here. Uh, but also that's why it's so complex. And someone there I met said, hey, because I would go around telling people, hey, I'm I'm backed by YC. I have like hundreds of thousands in the bank and I want to build something. I want to build this. And so people found it really intriguing and refreshing. I was 25 or 26 or whatever. And one person I met there, his name is Graham uh, Parker, who's the founder of, a, of another company, said, hey, I have someone in Mexico that you should meet. And I think they would sell you if you're willing to pay a little bit of money. They're freight forwarder with all these licenses that other companies we know take years and years to get right and so i actually did two things one i went down to visit so i could shadow and actually understand what people do because that was the yc muscle of like seeing the customer pain point seeing the processes i could i could do no, none of that from afar so i would visit freight forwarders in new york and this and then when i heard about this one i just flew down there and then i built such a good relationship with the owner of that company uh his name is josh wolf he has another extremely successful financial services business in the logistics world he ended up being like hey i believe in you give me, you know, I want to be an equity investor. So I'll sell you the company for no cash. And let's, let's, let's build this thing. Um, so he was extremely reasonable. And he was incredible. And that really jumped us off. And when that happened, Sam, my co founder heard that he's like, Okay, that sounds like a really big deal. Uh, and we have money. And then investors heard about that. And then this momentum that I feel like you need to get startups going just came together in 60 days where we had licenses, we had revenue, we had the employee running that company. And then we started getting more investment. And then I had my technical co-founder. And that's just like a classic example of how momentum compounds after like a lot of months and years of talking with the tech co-founders and, and learning about this. And that really got us started. Um, and that was about April, May 2019. That company was doing ocean and air shipments, actually. Uh, and that's not, we decided we didn't want to do that. So we had to spend three months learning and actually decide to shut down all the revenue, which is very small. And then in August or, or September, we started moving the first trucks between the US and Mexico. But now we had someone who knew how to do this. We had licenses. We, we learned a bit more and we already had some customers that we could learn from. Uh, and, and, then we and then we just did the YC thing. Pick a number, grow it every month and just and just hustle until until it's a big company. Right? So is the license, the, they allow you to just ship anything that's not yours across the border. That's kind of what the license ticket what is that? What, do you, what is it that you need exactly? There, there's multiple licenses. Um, so I just didn't want to get into the jargon, but I'll summarize it with one license is for you to legally import the goods into the U.S. That's you filing a paper with filing an entry with Customs and Border Patrol saying, hey, this is a truck of tequila. And they're believing you because you have this certification that requires an FBI background. Check. Like Flexport publicly says it took them three years to get this. That's why we knew it was a big deal to get that license. Um, and then the other two or three licenses are more like, hey, you are certified to be a freight forwarder by the Federal Maritime Commission for Ocean or the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Association. And then associated with that is all these like insurance bonds you need to have. So they had done a lot of that work in this LLC that we acquired. And it came with one person who's also still in Vocargo. Her name is Cristina Rodriguez, who I was just shadowing like a maniac so I could understand absolutely everything she did every day. And then I understood what freight forwarding really was, right? Yeah, that's lovely. That's like the best studying you can do is just be in it, right? And I, uh, and I think this is one of those other paths of potentially starting companies is just go work in that industry that you think there is something in. You 100%. just happen to like acquire one of those companies where you could learn all of it from, which is wonderful. That was a good shortcut. Yeah, <laughs> it was a good shortcut. Because I was clueless. Like, just to be clear, I'm also very honest. I did not. Yes, my dad had a small logistics business, but I was completely clueless about what we were trying to do. I just knew it could be large and I had some building blocks culturally. And so I was on a race to... Uh, 
let's say, make my learning curve uh, as steep as possible and learn really, really fast, right? Because that was my hypothesis. If founders, if it took me 18 months in the lobby to be considered an expert in recruiting, which I don't, I didn't consider myself, but enough that I could be knowledgeable and have interesting insights. I said, I'll take, I'll bite the bullet for nine to 18 months and just be the dumbest person in the room. But then I will know enough and then I can spend the next decade just building this thing into something much bigger than what the lobby could have ever been, right? And so your fundraise again was same entity? Same entity. Which is super nice of you, I think. And, and, and I'm sure there's a lot of thought. I remember actually there was a lot of thought what went behind it when you were deciding that, hey, I have this idea now. Uh, but I, I, yeah, tell me why, I guess, like you didn't just shut down and, and start from scratch. Yeah, it, it wasn't so altruistic. Um, so I was a single non-tech founder. Uh, we had raised at what I considered a very high valuation, $8 million, like a million bucks. So it was very low dilution. At the time, that was very good. That was very good, right? And, and then I gave money back. So that removed more dilution. So I said, if I started again, am I going to have a cap table this good where I have YC, most of the equity? Uh, I don't think so. I would probably just raise at a lower price. So it wasn't that altruistic. It was like, hey, I was so obsessed with YC. I'm like, I want to be a successful YC company since they gave me a shot. And I think it's a better cap table than I could build if I started from scratch because I had no credentials. I was like a guy who tried an idea for 18 months or 12 months and it didn't really work. So for me, it wasn't that altruistic. It was like, hey, this is a good excuse. And then I don't have to do all the legal work. I already have money in the bank. People know what I'm doing. We just get to work, right? So it was actually, I think, a very practical choice. And then my co-founder came and got a bunch of equity. And then we started hiring people and raising money. And then it just became like a normal cap table, I would say, where it wasn't like those companies where you've raised a ton of money and diluted like crazy. And then it makes more sense to shut down, right? It was actually a better deal, I think, to keep going. Yeah, it's almost like, you know how people do these... Um search entities where they're like raise a bunch of money and like i'm gonna go find a companies because you were a solo founder and you didn't you stopped fast enough it feels like that's kind of like this start was oh yeah i just searched for a very good idea and now we're scaling it yeah um, totally totally call I mean, the search funds yeah search funds yeah that's yeah. a very mba thing i have a lot of friends doing them <laughs> right now actually yeah yeah the classic so yeah you know one of the things that i i feel like you're extremely good at and this comes up like every time we have one of these therapy groups is that you're, you're a very good fundraiser. And I think it's part of the muscle you have to build to do VC or venture backed businesses. Um, you know, the first one, there's all this momentum. You, you went through it, you, you got this license, you have a co-founder. I think you raised some money right around then again to like- We raised a little bit of angel money. We were gonna do a bigger one, that fell apart. That was a big learning. And then nine months later, raised the big round, sorry, a seed round. And then we raised like two or three more since then, more proper rounds. And then but at, by this time you raised the seed, you had metrics to look at, right? Like you were building and you were scaling, um, which is wonderful. And I, I assume you recommend that as just to show traction. It's much easier to raise that way than anything else. But um, is there a way, is there a version of this thing that you said, no, like keep going and do like the R&D process before you raise your next round? Or would you say get to numbers as soon as possible? Good question. I don't know how to recommend in the general sense. I can just illustrate to your listeners, like my state of mind. I was in a desperate state of mind. I was like, like one of the columns in picking my ideas was time to revenue <laughs> because I was like, I am not going to be a zombie startup founder. Like that's, I, that was my obsession. Um, I don't know if that's healthy or not. So for me it was, so that's why buying the company was so interesting because we got to revenue and then, and then it was already more revenue than I had ever gotten <laughs> in, in the lobby. So it was like tens of thousands of gross revenue per month. And then realizing, um, and I think you just have to know what the core metric is for your company. When you're doing one of these tech enabled companies, at the end of the day, it is like 
GMV or transactions. If it was, if I was building superhuman or something like that, then I would obviously build it differently. I would think about how do I be in beta and, and build a product that's incredible for two years. But at that time, I'm like, what are businesses that I could be well suited for? Something that starts making money quite quickly and I know I'm on the right track and then I can let the software kind of catch up. Um, and so for me, that was that was the North Star. It was like, I'm going to launch something, I'm going to get the metric, and then I'm going to take this one metric, rally the entire company around just growing at 20, 30, 40, 50% per month. And we just did that for five months. We grew on average 70% per month and then we raised our seed round, which to your point, I'm laughing as you asked the question because I'm like, yeah, you're right. In the past two years, everyone's just been raising seed rounds with with nothing, right? Just like stories. And I, I never did that. I just didn't think that was a thing you did back in 2019 or 2020. Yeah. And I, and I think it's always happened to some degree, but it was the worst it had been, I think the last couple of years. And, um, you know, as someone that like helps companies and now I, I and invest in them, I think the correction in the market is probably fair. Um, that's happening right now. Um, and, but I think you're immune to it because you have numbers to, to back up what you're saying, which is what, which is wonderful. So, um, you did the services essentially from the beginning, the software started creeping in um, and you have to build a, both a services business and a high like execution, excellent software company. So how do you, how do you do that? What do you, what do you, <laughs> where, where do you put more, your own resources or like your mindset? It's very, very difficult. It's, it's very, very difficult. Yeah. It's extremely difficult. And I, and I don't want to sugarcoat it. That's why when we, we joke internally, like, Aren't you guys worried about the competition? I'm like, no, <laughs> it's a, it's a, no, I'm not. Good luck. You know, uh, it's, it's, it's a business with a lot of complexity for three reasons. Number one, because of what you just said, you have to build a freight forwarder and a software company. Number two, because it's a B2B marketplace. So you have marketplace dynamics on matching supply and demand on both sides of the border. And number three, it's online to offline. There's a way to do this that's relatively offline that customers are used to. And so you have to map out those data inputs, make it more online. And so at this point, we've been, we moved the first, like I said, US-Mexico trucks late 2019. So we've been at this for two and a half years. Um, and I would say that the first year and change probably was just about honing in on the right roadmap and getting the right people around the table because we were so under-resourced, right? Our head of product, Anaid, who came from Dropbox, uh, grew up on the border. She's incredible. She joined us uh, the summer of 2020. So I've been at it for like nine or 12 months. It took her a few months to really understand the complexities of the business. And then we really started feeling like we were executing. We were still a seed company then, right? So I think that it's very difficult, but it's going to be a very powerful moat for us at scale because we're very focused on this one trade lane, this mode of transportation, and mapping out all the permutations of northbound, southbound shipments and understanding that was difficult. I think what I would say is you needed to grow the core business fast enough to raise enough capital that you could fuel the core business and invest in product and engineering. Uh, and also, when you're a marketplace, you have to build liquidity where your margins can be really tight early on until you start getting scale. That's why I think we've crossed some of the most existential and difficult parts of the business now. And now it, now it feels really good because we have a lot of capital and yada, yada, right? But there's two questions I have, but before we get into it, uh, can you just define market uh, marketplace liquidity real quick for everybody? Yeah. So for me, marketplace liquidity is, let's say you go on amazon.com and you want to find a lacrosse ball. I needed to buy one because something in my back was screwed up and you don't find lacrosse balls. That means that Amazon doesn't have liquidity in the marketplace from buyers and sellers, right? There's not enough 
buyer, so there's no sellers for the lacrosse balls. And I'm a buyer, but there's no sellers, so there's no liquidity. So in our case, that means that we needed to have enough supply and demand from people who want to move goods from tr and trucking companies that want to move it for you. Um, and we're still building that. It's going to take us a while because it's such a big market. But we do have liquidity now on certain lanes and certain regions between the U.S. and Mexico. And so building that out from zero is the classic marketplace issue, chicken and egg problem, which takes a while and, and is expensive to solve, right? Yeah, and, I, and I, that my, what was going to be my second question is like, how subdivided is your liquidity market? Like, you have to like lots of different regions, and so it sounds like routes. Are those the only two dimensions, or are there like many more? There, there's, there's. So the nice thing about geographically is forty percent of U.S. Mexico trade concentrates on one border crossing, which is La, La, Laredo, Texas, or Laredo, if you want my Hispanic <laughs> pronunciation or American one. Uh, and so we started there, and then there's six or seven routes to and from Laredo from Mexico. So that actually concentrated things and made it a little bit easier. And we just made a lot of decisions to be focused. We said no to other border crossings. We said no to other equipment types. We said no to other countries, whereas other startups in the space just expanded everywhere. And you know maybe their strategy will work. I think that introduces way too much complexity and product overhead. Uh, we'll see. I think time will tell. And so then when you have the geographic dimension, then you have to choose equipment types, like, will you move refrigerated goods, drive-in goods? So we only move today 53-foot drive-in full truckloads between the U.S. and Mexico crossing through Laredo. So getting to that level of specificity has taken us a while. But that's like 80% of the stuff or 90% of the stuff that crosses through that border crossing. So it's a very, very big market. It's like 10 million truckloads a year. But getting to that level of specificity has been painful and difficult. Uh, and now I think we're, we're really good at that and we need to get much better at it. Um, but that's those were the dimensions, right? Yeah, and I think it makes a lot of sense when you're trying to master a process, you have to like simplify it as much as possible first, and then you can introduce and first of all, you get to get good at mastering processes. That's the first thing you have to learn as, a, as an organization, right? Uh, so the other question I had for you is around this like software slash services thing. Uh, walk me through the org design, like are the software teams embedded in the ops teams? Are they separate? And there is like a product management organization that talks to them and thinks of them as the users? Like, how do you work? Yeah. So we've interviewed probably the best companies in the world at this. And I can tell you that no one seems to feel like they have the right answer. They all say that every org design is by design flawed and there's some trade-offs. What we've landed on today is we have a business equation. Uh, basically, we learned, hey, when businesses are complex, the, the best thing you can do, and we learned this through the YC growth program as well, which we did last year, map out the levers that grow your business. And so we mapped out a business equation where there's demand, there's supply, then there's marketplace dynamics, and then there's kind of operations that wraps it all together. So those four things. Uh, and those are the main functions. And then everything else, whether it's product, finance, legal, these things are kind of supporting and servicing those functions. And so uh, that's how we've built it. So product is kind of embedded in each function, but they are they have a vision and a roadmap of how things need to be. And they're building products in verticals, one for the demand side, one for the supply side, one for the marketplace side. And that's what we've landed on today. And we'll see if that changes in the future. Product people and the engineers are literally part of like, let's say the, the supply team or the demand team or? No, they, they're, they're like implanted if you want to think of it that way. And they have a roadmap for those teams, but their career paths and everything are still with our head of product because that's what they want. But they're, they're like our Elena, our product manager for carrier, she lives and breathes only products for the supply side of the marketplace uh, and will collaborate with those teams and study their actions and interview those customers and has a roadmap for them. 
Yeah, and then there is like, these customers are both like internal ops people you have and then external people that you work with. Yeah, that makes a Correct. lot of sense. Um, yeah, I think that's like a tough problem that you're solving there. And and I, that that wisdom you just mentioned of like, org designs are flawed by design or by, by their nature and there's trade-offs. I think that seems to be the reality every time you speak to a founder who's trying to design these things. And um, do you feel like you will change it over time? Like it sounded like the answer is yes, but maybe you're not seeing it right now. I mean, I, I just don't think I'm arrogant enough to know that I know more than a lot of people who've done this before. And the more we've interviewed people, whether it's that scaled Flexboard or Convoy or other complex uh, B2B marketplaces, org designs happen all the time. And I think it's because even if something feels like it works well at this scale, if you grow fast enough, which we've been lucky to always grow pretty fast, um, you will have to evolve it to the new level of scale or the new learnings, or maybe your product roadmap is doing so well that it automated some big thing that broke a bunch of old processes that you had. Uh, so I would imagine it has to change, but I don't know if it changes. I hope it won't change too much because those reorgs, this is something we learn also by interviewing all these execs that we're trying to get to hire us from big companies. The amount of time these bigger companies that we respect spend just like reorging and changing stuff and not really building is insane. So I, my personal mission is to try to find a way for us to do that as, as uh as little as, as, as we need to, right? Has that happened yet at all where you've had to like redesign the org to some extent? Yes. Yeah, it already happened once, I would say. One big way and then one other small way that didn't really... Yeah. How, how did that go? What did you learn? I think one thing I learned, which is maybe funny about humans, other people might look at it cynically, is people will always find a way to game the system, if that makes sense. So I'll give you an example. We have to get... We have salespeople basically on both sides of the marketplace bringing the demand and the supply and you have to pay them commissions. And the way you set up the incentives for, are they optimizing for top line? Are they optimizing for margin? Are they optimizing for new customers? Like absolute number of customers or revenue, like all these things, as well as you think them through, people will find a way to game them so that they find the one edge case, which you didn't want them to do, isn't good for the business, but is good for them individually. That will happen. And so I think being really thoughtful about incentives in, in org design is really important. Uh, and then also being thoughtful about feedback loops, because I think right now we're going through a process where it feels like some teams are too siloed. And now we have to make sure that they have the right voices in the room to move faster. So I think those are the types of trade-offs we're always making. It's around, is it too siloed? Is it too jumbled together so you can't break things down? Do you have the right incentives so that every single person knows if I move this number this week, I am contributing to the growth of the business. Um, so I think it's a lot of learnings around getting those things right. And that, and that, that, that is really hard. Yeah. I mean, this, this resonates with me a lot where, uh, th there was like, there's been stories I've heard of people like working at Facebook and Google and like squeezing out every perk that is possible. And I used to think, well, that's just something that happens to like very big companies. Why would it happen in like a startup of like 40 people? And then you start putting up perks and then you'll see people like maximizing everything. Um, exactly. And, and you're like, okay, well, I, I understand now. And it's, it's, like a, it's like a human scale problem to some extent, but also it's just when you give people games, they want to win at the game, um, no matter what, even, even if they care about the collective to some extent and all altruistic, they will still think individually to some extent, yeah. right? I don't know if in Pyramid you feel this way. The other learning for me is I consider myself kind of a warm leader, like get along with people, really care about them and, you know, obviously hold the performance bar really high, but uh, I've always known most people at the company. We went from, I think last year, early last year, 25 people to now 180 in like 16 months or something like that. And 
there's just people that have joined and left already that I have never met now. And that's insane. And so you also learn that the reason you have to design these things for the right incentives is because it's not just going to be like the early stage feel where everyone knows each other. It is going to be at some point, if you're trying to, if you're in it to build a big business, you're going to build something that outscales you and your time and the amount of things you can catch. So it just has to be well thought out from a number of different perspectives so that it works well at a, at a 10x, 3x, 5x bigger scale, right? And so how do you, yeah, I guess walk me through that. So I completely agree, obviously, with that. And how do you, how do you, how do you do it where let's say you want to introduce a new process or a new incentive, like how do you battle test it? before it goes out. I, I'm really bad at this, so I don't even want to pretend like I, <laughs> I know what I'm doing here. I mean, we've talked about this in our therapy group. I feel like some founders have strengths, others have weaknesses. Mine is most definitely, my weakness is most definitely around great ops process and ops excellence and accountability. And I'm trying to hire, and I have been hiring for that to compliment me on our leadership team. What I see our leaders do, which come from like Uber and Amazon and Kavak and these massively complex operational businesses at scale, is they're just very good at going from, I see the problem, diagnose it. They'll actually build up some visual way for us to understand the problems. And because they have some battle scars of how they've built their ops teams, they already have um, they already have learnings of, hey, if you do it this way, people are going to game it this way and that way and this way. Uh, and then they'll launch it and then they'll con- and then they'll make sure to also budget time to build in measurements so you can see things that you can correct right after you launch it. But I do think this is not the type of thing where you can launch something and change it in three months because people will get mad. Like we've had salespeople get quite angry that we've had to change commission structures five times, right? That's not, that's not, so I think you have to be nimble and iterative, but understand that when you're doing it in org design, you're doing it with real humans and their jobs and what they thought they needed to succeed. Uh, like I'll give you an example. We, we, we had a salesperson who, was going to close a customer that moved refrigerated freight. And we had just decided as a leadership team, hey, we're, we're, we're accommodating all these crazy options for refrigerated freight. And last month we moved like two versus a thousand of non-refrigerated freight. So let's remove it. And the salesperson was like, wow, I had worked so hard on this customer. You guys took it away from me. And so we know that there's a real human cost when we make changes. So you have to be careful, but also I think you have to make those decisions. So I think balancing that uh, is not my strength, but I think we've hired leaders that are very, very good at that. And do you like, I assume there's like a bunch of communication. You do try to get them to understand why you ended up making the decision to begin with, right? It's not like you're going to cut it out. Yes. But, but, but this is the issue. Yeah. When you're, when you're really hyperscaling, you think you address six issues like that. And then three more pop up that you forgot about or didn't know. And so you just have to build the muscle of, Hey, when people bring it to you, really explain it to them. And um, again, I think we, we have our strength as a company is our culture and, and people understand that things are being done thoughtfully and with good intention, but it is going to happen if you're moving fast enough. Otherwise, you're, you're probably moving very slow, right? Like you're going to have problems with these things. Yeah, you're almost spending too much time and worrying about the repercussions of things as opposed to getting shit done. You, you, mm-hmm. you, you just can't. It's, it's much better to spend time thinking intrinsically what is the right move for the company with the information I have and then executing on it. I think you can get good at mitigating some of the downsides of that as long as the people that you work with know that you're doing it in service of the company being better overall because that's what everyone wants if they work at a startup uh, i'm going to ask you more of an unknown question because I, I don't know what you do here um do you so you you just mentioned around how like you're generally like a super positive and nice guy which i can attest to right um at the same time this is like a somewhat of a ruthless industry and in that there's like very small amounts of margins with shit that like means like just you cannot make that many mistakes 
And also the cherry on top of that is the scale uh, you just talked about. You went from like 60 something to 180 something um, in, in less than two years. How do you make sure you're not disconnected from the people still? Like, are, are these now just flowcharts in your head and, and, and you're just dealing with your uh, main VPs? Are you talking to people? Like, what are you doing? Yeah, so it is very difficult, but again, could be wrong. I never like to make bold statements because there's probably someone at Nuvo Cargo who may disagree given their own personal experience. But the feedback that I consistently get is that I'm very nice, almost too nice. <laughs> uh, so maybe it's something I need to work in the other direction. Um, and I think I've built certain habits and systems inside our company as CEO where my voice is heard and felt by people and people can reach out to me if there's something specific. But at some point you have to realize that if the CEO is the person who solves all these people problems, something is very wrong with your company, right? Uh, because you're not having the right management and the right leadership and your managers aren't good people managers. Um, so I'll tell you some things I do, but the, by far the highest leverage thing is hiring people that have values similar to yours, that uh, think the way you do about building a great place to work. Uh, so that you don't have to worry. I actually think my leaders are better than me at people management. So it's a waste of time for me to try to interject and try to show my presence in things where I know they've got it, right? And I will mostly interject when I feel like that's not true uh, for whatever team or something that's going on. And I think that scales way better. But to answer your question, there's a bunch of things that I do to make my message as CEO or presence felt. So one thing that we took from one of our investors, David Vélez, the CEO of Nubank, we asked him, like, why is everyone raving about Nubank's culture, right? Why is everyone saying it's so great? It's thousands of people. And he gave me some examples, but he said it's really about speaking with, uh, you know, your, your, your action. So one thing he still does to this day, which I've now basically with his blessing copied, is a monthly presentation for all of our new hires where I will personally walk everyone through the values and the culture and examples of what it means to live our values and what it doesn't. And I give them the space to ask me questions, to push back. And that way, the first time we actually get to speak, because I don't get to speak with everyone in the interview process anymore, is about this thing that's about the culture and how I expect people to behave and what the culture is like here uh, and what it means to be a bad culture fit and a good culture fit. And that that's good. The other one is there's all hands every two weeks and I'm the one speaking a lot of the time so people can hear me. Uh, and so building in, I think, feedback loops like that. I also was in every interview until we we're about 120 people. And so people learned how I interview, people would be listening in. Uh, we have scorecards when you interview people, like what's a good culture fit, what's not. And so I think it's enough of like rote, repetitive work of hiring and culture that now the leaders below you understand. Um, and, and it's not just me, by the way, we define the culture with our leaders. So coming together and realizing this is what this company is about in terms of culture and values. And then how do we scale that with systems, with, with interview processes, with uh, et cetera. And then I think that's the only thing that can endure. And that's why big companies do these things that we find fluffy, like values and strategy and mission. And I think I've really learned how valuable those things are now that we're getting to a point where I just can't talk with most people. Right. Yeah. I mean, I find it like extremely valuable. And I remember being young and an employee and working in places that had those things written. And there was like a distinct difference between the ones that walk to walk and just talk to talk. So um, you can also see that there, like someone has like grabbed it as a task and they've done it versus like, oh, no, no, this is like how we're going to scale this culture. So um, we're going to build it into the essence of what it's like to be here. Um, are those like biweekly things the only mass communication you're doing to to the team or 
uh, are you like writing or are you mostly like is it video audio like how are you talking to your team yeah i mean in terms of like scheduled touch points the bi-weekly all hands the monthly culture sessions obviously in the main slack channel we have a bot with my face spitting yeah, out the updates so on good. revenue <laughs> a few times per day so people yeah. can because i used to do that manually so we scale that so now people see my face with like a robotic terminator thing where with the revenue updates to make sure we're on track to hit our goals uh so there's little touch points here and there like that there's been times where i don't know there was a time a few months ago where i felt like people were too stressed about this massive migration i i recorded myself on a loom and told everyone how i saw these things in six different areas of the company that i thought were great it's hard but that's the hard work right i think you have some scheduled some are more ad hoc but just feeling a pulse for the company and the organization is i think the hardest part as you grow and in this remote environment that we are even the Nouveau cargo has a strong in-office component it still has a a lot of people remote we're not all in the same city uh so there's a lot of a lot of work there that that, that we're always doing to try to make sure people feel the culture and and, and feel the, the presence of their leaders yeah i think that the vibe setting is the way i would put it is like way harder and remote like i i write a weekly uh, weekly email that i also record myself speak as audio format so i have like basically a weekly podcast to my whole team and I call it the weekly pulse, just like use you just to use the word pulse, right? And um, and it's like the equivalent of like a standup you would do um, in like a normal office setting, but we're out of like seven time zones, so the standup doesn't work, right? Um, yeah, I, I feel you. I, I think it's hard. Um, I don't know if there is like a standard model you can copy like the standup in an engineering team or anything like that. It's it's a tough one. I mean, we we this is what this was the this type of question you're asking was literally what we talked about for 12 weeks in the YC growth program. And again, the conclusion was there's no right answer. There's things that a lot of CEOs do you can learn from. So like the weekly email was one we saw a lot of CEOs that YC growth talks about other tactics amongst your leadership team. Uh, what I heard from the new bank founder. I mean, I think I candidly think one of the jobs of a, a, a CEO that's scaling the company is to find as much of those data points as you can and then pick the ones that are that work and that feel authentic to your company's culture and leadership style. But I think that's my biggest learning. There isn't a perfect way to do any of this. And anyone who tells you there is, is probably three months away from everything breaking and then realizing that <laughs> it doesn't work. So, yeah. Yeah, I have like two more questions for you. So one is around this thing you just mentioned, which is like, oh, your job is to go out there and like find all the potential permutations of of solutions. Like, and you're quite talented at that. Can you walk me through, how do you do it when you're like, hey, let's say a uh, random problem. Like, hey, we have a uh, cash flow liquidity problem where we're putting our money up here and it has to come back and I have to solve this problem. I have no idea how to solve this problem. I'm gonna have to find a solution go what do, what, do, what do you do yeah i mean this this really goes back to like the lobby and everything about like how i got into yc and how i got a job in banking i think i've just developed this addiction to the fact that this problem that i'm losing sleep over and being extremely inefficient over someone out in the world or 20 people or 50 people in the world have already thought about for a year tried 20 things that didn't work and then figured out the one that did. So why would I spend my time, especially in startups where every month is so valuable if you're trying to move at hyper growth, you you just don't have that time, right? Um, that's my belief. It could be wrong. Again, I'm not saying we're not gospel here. I, I like different perspectives. So for absolutely everything we've done, uh, where there's an unsolvable problem, including some I have right now, I am consistently using my network to find someone who has solved that problem in a close enough way that I can learn some of the core tenets, then maybe hear three or four people and their solutions. And then I will 
compile that and then make a decision. And I often find that that is, and I have examples of that this month, like our head of people was talking about introducing cash bonuses. And I texted seven CEOs who are angels, realized that they instituted that when they were a thousand people, not 200 people. And I said, this is too early stage. We're not doing it. And, and I could only do that with um, conviction because I got data points from people in similar situations. The cash flow liquidity one you talked about, we actually had something like that in Nouveau Cargo and logistics companies have working capital issues. So we were able to find, I don't know, three CPA firms through investors that help specifically logistics companies, get them on the phone with your head of finance, ask them your questions. And more often than not, if you know how to ask the right questions and you're speaking with the right people, you will get clever solutions to your problems, or at least this happened to me with org design when I was doing YC growth, you'll speak with five people, realize no one knows what the hell they're doing, and then you just pick the one that feels most logical to you, but at least you tried, right? All the examples you gave was like getting intros from your investors. So it sounds like you're using your investment network quite well. Is that is that the only path you're going through? Or you're like cold emailing people? No, I mean, all, all the oh, cold emailing people. Um, actually, the investor thing is just recent because now we have a big investor network. We've raised a bunch of money. That was not true a year or two ago when I was figuring all this stuff out. I think you have to be clever in finding the right introductions. Um, so I'm trying to think of one example. I remember who connected me to this guy who was head of sales at a very big trucking tech startup. And I was just starting and I realized that I couldn't get on the phone with customers. I was selling them and I sounded clueless. So we found an arrangement with his startup where he needed help with something. And I said, we'll pay you whatever thousand dollars a month. And he flew down to Mexico City with me and he ran interviews for all of our salespeople. And he hired our first five salespeople. 50 times faster than I would have been comfortable with because he had done this with hundreds of people, right? And I will do things like our board meetings. We have someone who attends who has scaled US-Mexico cross-border brokers, the old school way, to hundreds of millions from zero because I found him that this guy's perfect and we gave him equity and we started paying him hourly. And he comes to our board meeting so that I don't feel like our board meetings are full of VCs who know nothing about logistics, right? And me, who also has not scaled this before. And so I'll just consistently do this in every aspect of my life. Um, and and I, think, I think it's a huge shortcut in a hundred different ways, right? Yeah, I would say this is one of your uh, magic points that I've definitely copied over the years. Um, where, yeah, I think th there was someone who was asking me internally, like, I think our chief of staff is like, how did you figure this out? I'm like, oh, I just called 30 people <laughs> uh, to <laughs> figure it. it out. It was like the most epoch thing ever. And so- um, love it. And then, so I guess the last part is just the investment apparatus. Like, <clears throat> I know you you wanted some brand names at some point that were specific to your industry and things like that. Like, has is that helpful? Would you recommend it? Is money just money? Does it matter? So here I've learned a lot from Eric and Kareem at Ramp, who I know you know well, the founders of Ramp, the credit card company, if you guys know. I think what I've learned, I've learned two things that are, could be contradictory. One is your investors are not going to build your company for you. So don't expect that. And people who expect too much of their investors are perpetually unhappy and are the people you always hear complaining about stuff. They didn't fund me for this reason. They didn't help me with that. Like your job is to make the company successful no matter what. And investors are not going to do that for you. Now, that being true, one thing that I found, and I learned a lot of this from Eric and Kareem, and maybe it's because I started with 41 angels in the lobby, and then I saw how Eric and Kareem raised from, even though they could, they were raising from the most blue chip funds, they made space for like 100 angels in their seed round. You want cheerleaders. You're building a community. You're trying to will something impossible into the world. Um, so I have always had the approach of adding people to the cap table as teammates that add value in some way while keeping low expectations, which is my first point, right? So... Our seed round was led by NFX and LVP. Why? Not because I thought they were going to make the company, but hey, NFX is 
first of all, I love James' career. It's incredible. It's still an incredible, invaluable CEO, coach, and mentor. So that was 99% of the reason. But they have a good brand. They're Silicon Valley. They know marketplaces. Then LVP knows Mexico. Then we raised from QED, who knows the fintech stuff. Then we raised from all these Mexican businessmen and families that can help us locally. Um, we raised from whatever, you know, Tiger as a passive investor, big, deep pockets. We've always thought of constructing the cap table and then angel investors like David Vedas from Nubank who I can call and text with little questions. So I will always find a way if someone wants to put in 10 million, put in nine, give me a million dollars and I'll split that up with 20 people. Each of them will add something to our company that uh, I might not need on a day-to-day basis, but they're there to call on. And by the way, they build extremely good long-term relationships if you know how to handle it. So that's how I think about it. And I learned that from Eric and Kareem and then just from examples myself where I can't believe I got this crazy help. Like there's one investor who put 20K in our last round and he personally has been, he has personally closed two execs for us. Like what if I would have given that 20K to a VC? It's like insane, right? Or or whatever, you know, got on us customers or, so I've just, I've, I think we have 200 people on our cap table, maybe more through indirect SPVs. And I know there's some risk of leakage and probably people that I don't want have some of our information, but I think the benefits outweigh the, the cons every day of the week. Yeah, and I said it, it, the, the leakage problem is interesting. I mean, the SPV is like is a non-problem because you're not going to get anything, so that's easy, right? Um, I yeah, I guess I I personally think first of all, like I think Kareem and um, Eric at Ramp have, have been clearly very thoughtful. I, I this is the part where I, I I think I'm like seeing more of because capital became so cheap over the last couple of years, people were able to be a lot more thoughtful than before. Like I think you could in 2017 or 18 if you were fundraising you would just grab it out of like maybe two or three options you had. In 2019, 2020, it was 40 options. And you're like, well, maybe I could have all of them. And, you know, I, I think I, I'm I'm frequently in that 1 million chunk that you talk about, right? Because my check sizes are small and founders are like, hey, we think you're going to be helpful when you grow and things like that. Um, but then the VCs do want to take that over. So it quite, you know, at least two or three deals I was in last year, I couldn't put as much as I wanted because they're like, well, the VC pushed back. We wanted 2 million and now we have 1 million allocation. I want to fit more people. Can you do like half the amount of your, you, you said you would. Um, and so it, it is becoming so competitive that like, the VCs want that 1 million, you know, which is like not much in like a series A. Uh, but I, I, I can see that being very helpful, especially if, you know, I think it sounds like you're, not, you're good at finessing it and, and keeping and maintaining all these relationships in a way that is useful to you. Yeah, you you have you have, you have to be good at that. Like I have a lot of founders that I've angel invested in, and they'll ask me for an example of my investor update, and then I laugh because I'll get ten updates with the same call out where I say, "Please," it's in a very nice way. I say, "Hey guys, there's a lot of you. Please leave me alone." That's not what the wording is, but it's kind of like, "Hey, we can build a relationship, but people have to respect." I'm not going to hop on calls. I'm not going to, you know. There's a lot of email. Like we sent out an update yesterday. So many people reaching out with insights or someone who I didn't even know sold a company to Zynga for like a billion dollars. And another person who was at Facebook when they were 700 people. And I said, I need help with this org design issue. Uh, and people will respond. Sometimes they won't do anything because I don't have expectations, but then I'm pleasantly surprised at this team that we have. Um, but to your point, I think you have to be good at finessing. You have to be good at saying no. I was really bad at this. Like our seed round was very, very oversubscribed, which sounds like a champagne problem and it is but it's also super painful to tell people who said i'll back you before others tell them no when they said yes to you first and you take someone with a better brand name whatever things that everyone understands why you would do them uh, and so getting good at saying no and convincing people why it's okay to have a smaller check and for the vc to get less 
that's I think I think it is what you're saying. It's in an environment of abundance or when you have a CEO that's good at managing those relationships and those dynamics. You don't have to be like at the end of the day, the most important thing is making a successful product and a company. These are things that help. That's it. Right. Well, you know, thank you so much for being on here. It was super fun to get to know the details of the story a little bit more. Uh, I appreciate you spending your time and uh, hope to see you around. Thanks for having me, Nima. I'm betting that Nuva Cargo continues along the hyper growth journey with Deepak at the helm. If you're not following our show, tap that follow or subscribe button to get every episode as soon as it's released. Thanks for listening and until next time.